Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Tipner West is a peninsula in Portsmouth, now an MOD firing range, that the council has plans to transform into a 4,000-home car-free neighbourhood with a green edge. Natasha McIntyre-Hall, Assistant Director of Regeneration at Portsmouth City Council, tells us about her ambitious plans to pioneer a new way of living and working in Tipner West. I'm Natasha McIntyre-Hall. I'm Assistant Director looking after strategic developments in Portsmouth City Council. Thank you very much for being here with me today. We want to talk about Tipner, but we also want to start with, I think, Portsmouth in general. So what are the challenges facing you in in Portsmouth? And then out of that, we'll drop the opportunities. So, Sure. Uh, I came to Portsmouth just over a year ago, uh, simply because of the opportunities that actually it's it has on offer. I mean, it's a tremendous place that just hasn't sung about what it's done, which is really useful for me. I get to take full advantage of that. Um, so I'll start off with the, the great things about Portsmouth. Um, its location is fantastic. Uh, we regularly have people tell us we have more hours of sunlight than any other uh, city in the country. Um, we are an island city. Um, we have three roads on and three roads off, and uh, it makes a real community. Uh, we're really, really well connected, so uh, in terms of roads, we've got the uh, A3 and the M3 going up to London. We've got fairly easy airport access through Southampton and Gatwick. We've got a railway line that goes directly into central London. Um, we also have an international port and ferries that link to the Isle of Wight, um, the continent and the Channel Islands. Um, and we've got a hovercraft that goes um, out as well, um, which is terrific. So in terms of connection, we really are just uh, hugely well connected. So tell me about what you do, what your role is. Um, I represent the council as a property developer. Um, we look at big regeneration projects and individual development sites as well. We start off by looking usually at council-owned land um, to understand how we can make better use of it for um, improved lives of the communities that are there. But we will also look at purchasing land where appropriate in order to uh, create uh, the best possible developments. And when you're um, looking at what you want to do, what are the pressures, what are the demands on you? <clears throat> What's expected? Homes, presumably. Mm. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's all sorts of things. Portsmouth has, uh, we've got a requirement, like ev almost everyone else has, that we need to create 18,000 uh, homes over the next 20-something years. What Portsmouth has that most other people don't is the island status that means that we have very lim limited space. We have no green space that we can convert to do that. So we have an option, we go up or out, uh, and Tipner does both. <laughs> um, but homes is just, you know, if you boil it down to the absolute basics, then homes is, is, is hugely important. 
but actually making sure that we've got the employment, the skills, the education to support that number of people is, um, is hugely important. Uh, we are known as a mar marine and maritime uh, community and with changes around how the Navy operate and, um, uh, and just how we interact with the water, we need to be more flexible with that. And um, so it's about using the knowledge we've got, being able to set that up as a specialist hub, but also about the city as a whole thriving uh, as a large community. So Portsmouth has declared a climate emergency. It has. <clears throat> and flooding is obviously an issue. Where is where is Portsmouth at in terms of uh, its flood risk? Uh, so flood risk is um, really interesting. It, we have completed flood defences in association with uh, Environment Agency to the north of the island. Um, and we are in the process of finalising uh, designs and details for what's happening in the south of the island. So we have a grant and we are actually looking at exactly how we deliver it. I think at the moment we've got several thousand homes that are um, only insurable through specialist insurance against flood at the moment. We've done an awful lot of consultation around um, the seafront master plan and the design for um, a structural solution, a pretty structural solution, um, around how we can actually improve the flood defences uh, to the south of the city. Um, I believe that starts in 2021. And once that's done, how long will Portsmouth be safe? Uh, I I will have to check that one. Um, that that is is not a number I know. Um, I'm fairly sure it's taking us up so that we are protected for a one thousand year scenario. Um, but yeah, that's not my project. Mm. Well, I think um, quite interesting to talk about that density. And you have said you have to go up or out, and mm -hmm. Tipner does both. Tell me about this site. Tell you about Tipner. I, Tipner is a peninsula off the side of the main island. It's located at Junction 1 on the motorway, which is council-owned motorway. At the moment, it's uh, mostly dedicated to um, a firing range, uh, but there are other trade uses that are um, on the site right now. Uh, so that's part of this MOD. I mean, there's all this land, and it's interesting to talk mm. about Portsmouth in terms of land ownership, because actually you own quite a lot of the land of the council. Yeah, the council is really lucky. I mean, we own over 15,000 residential units, but actually there are chunks of land that we own all across the, um, all across the main island. Uh, and actually out and beyond, we own land up in Havant um, and um, uh, from sort of wartime when we needed to rehome people uh, in a hurry. Um, this was MOD land though? We have an agreement to take ownership of the firing range um, when we do a uh, vast majority of that peninsula is already within our demise and we are just looking to talk to the people who have uses on there about how we can help them to relocate into other areas. And so what's the vision? The vision is what Tipner is is a piece of land that if we had a flood event right now would be underwater. So what we're considering is actually, we, if what we did was capped it off as it is, we'd have to buy a load of land in and we would make an island that's that shape. If we take the land that we've got now and we can use it to sort of push it out, 
We create undercroft parking, we cap off anything that needs remediation, but we end up with a larger land mass. So that's the basis of thinking for Tipner. Now, because of the flood risk and because of the remediation that's required, what we really need to do is improve the density on that area to make anything, any development financially viable. But I'm completely biased, but that provides us with an absolutely fantastic opportunity that we can then think about this from a different point of view. So if what is important to us is making sure that we've got density and making sure that we can create community on there, then we need to start thinking about this from people first and then understand how we can make the logistics of that work. Where we've got to now is that we are considering how do we create that community? How do we have them visible? How do we have them to interact with that space? Um, and then we started to sort of design backwards. So in many areas in Portsmouth and many areas across the country, in fact, when people live in apartment blocks, what usually happens is when they come out of their front door, they're on the curtilage of a road or in their, they're in a car park. Now, when you think about what's happening with our ageing population, if anybody's got issues with mobility or um, any visual impairment, if they've just got kids or pets, um, or if they have any, um, any conditions that might actually make it uncomfortable for them to be in sort of an, either an open or an enclosed space, walking out the front door suddenly becomes something that can become quite a hostile occasion. And they're expected to do that at, you know, at least once a day. Um, so we started off as that as our, our idea that if we're going to have to create the density and create apartments, how can we stop them from having that episode every single time they leave their own front door? So the anxiety of that threshold of absolutely I'm coming out, there's traffic, there's absolutely pollution, there's noise. But also you're going out sometimes onto a very narrow pavement. Um, and, you know, if you're carrying bags or if you've got a double buggy or if you're in a mobility scooter, suddenly that, you know, negotiating that can become quite tricky. So what happens if your apartment was rooted in public realm? How would that change your experience? Um, then we started to take it a bit further and we're saying, well, if it's public realm, actually, um, we have this opportunity to eliminate curbs because now people are wandering out. And actually, if there aren't cars and there aren't those steps, so curbs to anybody who's sort of mobile, um, they, they're fairly innocuous things. There's a little step up and a little step down and it's absolutely fine. But they are there to, and deliberately designed to keep cars and people separated. Now, again, ageing population and wheeled personal vehicles, mobility scooters, wheelchairs, buggies, whatever it is, those two don't mix. And frequently we see um, places where curbs have been dropped and suddenly that makes the pavement un uh, uneven and makes it a challenge for people to walk about. So, if we were to remove cars, we were able to then remove curbs, could we create a different place for people to live? And we believe the answer is yes. And so we've pushed that as a theme throughout the entire of Tipman. And we've taken it further. We've made sure that health and well-being is at the forefront of all of our thinking. So we've now created a two-kilometre route that goes right away along the whole waterfront to give people access to open space with views, space to breathe, with no curbs. So you can't drive there. 
you can walk there, you can cycle there, you can interact with it in another way, but what you can't do is drive, park on the waterfront and then take, and then take advantage of this area. So by doing this, we're hoping that not only are we creating that pleasant environment, but we're also making our community more visible. So I, when I leave for work in the morning, uh, I walk out my front door, I wander along to my car, I get in my car. I am visible to my community for about four seconds that it takes me to make that journey. And then I drive to the train station and off I go to work. However, if I was to live there and actually it was going to take me a three minute walk to get to the next transport junction, whether or not that, not that is for an Uber, a private car, a bus, whatever it is, or whether I've just got an electric bike. But if I am visible for that, I interact with my community. I understand a bit more what's going on. You know, events planning is really key at the moment to how you make a community. And if I'm visible, then I know what events are happening and, and, and I can actually interact with my environment. Someone told us a really interesting story a while ago about a community that had flooded. Um, and there was an older lady who was living on her own. And when the flooding happened, she went to her neighbours to try and get support. But they were almost all owned by, um, they were almost all second homes. And so she went and knocked on her neighbours and there was no one there because they weren't there at that time. And so suddenly, even though she lived in a community, she felt really isolated. Now, thinking about Tipner the way that we are, it comes with a managed solution and it comes with a visible community. We'd like to imagine that things like that are things that we can actually mitigate against and we can understand how people are in interacting with it and we can make sure that they feel connected and part of the community, even if their neighbours are out. So what do you think is the... Um... You, I mean, I, I, if I understand correctly, you've got to dig a hole anyway to get the soil to make, this, make these um, these kind of... Uh, what's it called? The site remediation that protects Tipper from the sea and yep. raising the level of it. Absolutely. But now you've got a car park in a curbless society. Absolutely. So, so I guess the, what's that? What's that transport connection? Uh, assuming that some of these people are going to be going to work off Tipper, um, although there is a mix of use on there is on it itself. Um, so yeah. So tell me about the car park, how that works, and sure. <laughs> so we. Where we've got to in terms of the design, first off, is we are now looking at 4,000 residential units, a million square foot of marine employment. So we are expecting that a number of people who live on Tipner itself will also have the opportunity to work there. I'll talk about the employment in a bit, but it's a really fundamental part of what we're doing there. But we accept that not everyone is going to work there and they're going to want to move. So, as you said, we have this opportunity for a podium deck which will help us with remediation, it will help us with the land reclamation, but also helps us to have that community that I've just talked about. And it becomes the beating heart, it becomes the managed centre. So when we talk about logistics and stuff, it all comes into that podium deck. So we will start building in 2023. So people will start living there in, let's say 2025, 26. When they do that, what we're expecting is that we will build a podium deck with a number of car parking spaces and other things in there. But it might be that if you're one of the first in there, you bring along your personal vehicle, you rent a space and you live there, just the same as you would in many different developments across the country. But actually we will be bringing in car clubs and we'll be bringing in 
um, charging points for electric bikes and we'll be bringing in different ways of people being able to move around and so it might be that you actually think a car is too expensive and why bother renting a space when actually there's a fleet of Ubers downstairs or you can be part of the car club and we've got one-way zip cars um, that might then go between Tipner and then off to the airport somewhere and you don't have to worry about the parking. We are acutely aware that in order to what Tipner will do is change the way that people live their lives and they can't do that with the, without the appropriate infrastructure. So we're looking at rapid transport to go through the site um, and we're looking at different transport alternatives. So we will never, we will aim to never limit people on how they want to be connected. We will just offer them alternatives and we hope that the sort of people who would like to live in Tipner anyway are making strong choices about the way that they want to live their life and actually they would engage in the idea of an electric car club or a bus down to the train station that might link them in a different way. When uh, you get your Amazon delivery, mm. does that come into the podium as well? Is that... it's, <laughs> it, it's early days, but yes, that's what we're thinking, is that by having that managed solution, um, we would have a room where people's deliveries come in. Um, the food shop one is actually really important. Um, very early days thinking, obviously, but one of the things that we're thinking is if we've got 4,000 residential units, let's say we've got roughly 10,000 people, if we've got 10,000 people, we're going to need a local uh, food offering in there. But what if the food offering in there is a Tipner cooperative of some sort or another? Um, and instead of when you order, instead of going to Ocado or Tesco, immediately actually you'll look at the, the Tipner collection that would allow people to get their same day deliveries but without it having to be shipped from miles and miles away and it will allow people to make choices quite easily about what's already on what's already there or what's being delivered in the next day or two that they can buy into it should also mean that you know you can help with the sort of scale of what we're doing and and how much waste the site has itself but obviously we aim to give people that view the the actual experience of living there is what we're focusing everything on. So, you know, if you're having a new sofa delivered, how does that work? Particularly when we, we're not going to have traffic out there. Is that a managed solution that then gets delivered into the podium deck and then there is an electric solution that takes it back out to, to the house if it's one of the houses? Um, and, and some of these details we just haven't finalised, but what we are doing is saying this is the vision and we will not have individual trucks making individual journeys across the site but instead there will be a managed solution for that. Um, obviously for vehicles there are two really obvious um, exceptions um, and that is if there's any emergency services required um, and if you're moving house. So, um, But again if you're moving house and actually you were in a rented solution then is that an exception or so what we're really trying to do is make sure that we maintain the vision, we are strong and precise with what we want the vision and how we want people to use it, and then we will consider what opportunities to deliver that come up as we come along. Because if we went on what we're doing right now, it would probably be a fleet of golf carts and a fleet of people that help with those awkward trips, but that doesn't help us to... Um, but that, that's definitely not what the solution's going to be in five, six, seven years time. Um, so we just have to have that flexibility to allow the tech to improve the way that we can deliver the vision that we see right now. So having that flexibility 
within it so that mm. you're, you're creating something that actually, if there is a brilliant new solution in, in 10 years or even in five years, you can incorporate that into it. it means that you're coming really, you're really focusing on the human and the person uh, because that's the, the one constant, really. The person's not going to have the same health needs and expectations. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like health and well-being is really, really critical there. What do you use to kind of inform that thinking? Are there... Um, I mean, who who helps you with your your vision to that that sense of keeping it flexible enough to adapt, but then also, what is it that is essential to people? Health and well-being is it has got to be fundamental. People are communities. You know, we we can we can build a load of stuff, but if people don't want to interact with it, all we're really doing is putting cases for people to put their lives inside. We don't want lives to be inside a building we want them to be all over the outside we want people to integrate with each other we want people to talk to each other um and we've got to understand the changing needs and the changing ways that people join in with these things um we work collaboratively across the council and we have a load of uh, awesome uh, consultants who are helping us with these things health and well-being is a is a it's a really interesting concept because you've got a couple of things there that you're looking at one of them is about sort of the absence of health and well-being um, and you know where we want to try and tackle obesity and getting people outside and the other one is about is really about happiness and joy and connection um, health and well um, our public health team are involved in helping us with the design um, what we're doing but we're also looking for examples all across the world in fact about where these things are being done well what lessons can we learn and how can we how can we design something that will deliver the change that people need um, and provide them with the ownership but yeah there's an awful lot of questions there's an awful lot of conferences <laughs> um, and um, there's an awful lot of listening um, are there some projects you've discovered that you that really excited you that you wanted to to bring the learning from there's all sorts of bits and bobs that are floating around, you know, um, King's Cross is a great example for um, providing those open spaces and the dense environments with the tall buildings but without it feeling oppressive when you're walking between them. Um, the hidden car parking and using that as part of the sort of um, <coughs> topography of how we go along. Um, our architects, uh, Gensler, they used um, St Michael's Mount as some of the inspiration um, about how uh, it could feel and how you could sort of move around the area with the high density in the middle allowing maximum possible views but also having that feeling of um, a fortress and um, we've looked at uh, Malmo for the waste um, solution so we're looking to uh, integrate a, a central waste system like NVEC. Um, we've been to Wembley and we've looked at uh, the Quintain TP model um, about exactly how that happens and if we're in more of a Netflix and Uber kind of lifestyle than um, pure ownership back in the day actually how can how can we pick that up and how can we make it easier for people to live transient lives in this one community. I mean, ideally what we want to do is create somewhere that people can be born into, they can grow up, they can interact into it in different ways, they can get a job, they can work there if that's the way that they want to do, and then they can retire and, e and 
the whole way through they can live in different sections of the same development and they can have that fluidity but they can always feel part of that one community no matter where they are in that sort of spectrum of life. If we talk about um, green infrastructure, you've mm. talked about this this two kilometer mm -hmm. coastal walk, yep. um, but also just in terms of the environment around there. There's, you know, um, you and I heard uh, talking about, you know, the, the need to rewild our cities, mm -hmm. or this, this idea of how do you bring nature into urban environments and the benefits of that. What are you thinking about when it comes to Tipna? We've got at least four different green areas um, that we've identified across uh, there. So we talk actually about green and blue infrastructure uh, because we need to interact with the water and we need to understand how that plays part in the design that we've got. We're also uh, very focused on a, bit, a net biodiversity gain um, and we're looking at different ways of doing it from the small things um, you know, bee bricks and things like that, um, to the larger things around um, whether or not we've got sort of community allotments and um, and actually making making use of the green space rather than just having it as a, a flat piece of grass over there. We don't we want people to interact with that. We're also putting in a bridge that will join Tipna East, uh, Tipna West to um, Horsey Island. Beyond Horsey Island, there is a piece of land that is shortly to become a country park. And that will give people access to a load more green space. Um, the idea, or one of, one of the things that I think is particularly attractive about that whole idea is actually the fact that you could go for a walk around the country park, then walk back onto Tipna West, stop there for your Sunday lunch. You know, it's a, it's, it's just having that access to green space is hugely important. But and how is Portsmouth? It's quite good for green space, actually, or is it? Or in terms it, of it currently? Yeah, it's it's got um, it's got quite a good number of very useful um, parks and open uh, green open spaces. Obviously, we're blessed with the amount of seafront that we've got. Um, where we lack in places um, is where we have an awful lot of Victorian terrace. Uh, houses and actually there's not any greenery on the streets there and there's not that space for it but Portsmouth is a very busy place um, and it is an aspiration for the city to create more green corridors across the whole city. And um, just to speak about the the volume of people coming into Portsmouth and the volume of goods coming through mm -hmm. there I mean this is still very much an active port it's very much a kind of um, a busy trafficked yeah uh, place we've we've got some awesome statistics uh, one of my favorite is that we have over nine million visitors a year come into Portsmouth I mean that number is astonishing um, you take it with a pinch of salt though because um, a lot of them are passing through on ferries but we also have um, Landsex Gun Wharf, uh, which create, brings in a huge number of people. And then just on a daily basis, we have 41,000 people enter the city for jobs and only 28,000 leave for jobs. The movement on the city, on the island itself, is absolutely huge. And one of the things that we have to improve at as a city overall is how do we, uh, how do we expand that dwell time? How do we get people to stay a little bit longer? Um, the tourism that we have is incredible. Um, you know, we've got historic dockyard, we've got uh, Spinnaker Tower, we've got uh, Mary Rose um, and D-Day Museum, obviously, um, just to name a few. Um, 
but trying to link it all together and encourage people to stay a little bit longer and to be able to join their experiences rather than coming to Gunworth, turn around and go again. How actually do we get them into South Sea and get to experience some of the boutiques and the specialisms over there? The artists area in Hot Walls, which is set up by the council to support artists and give them a place to work and sell. Um, there's loads of different examples of how people are encouraged to thrive, but at the moment, yeah, we're working on how we get people to dwell there longer and experience more of it. What do you think is, is a key to getting people to dwell? Uh, I think it's about signposting. I think it's about uh, ensuring that we have um, mixed and balanced communities. I think we need to ensure that um, we have quality open space. And I think we need to talk about it more. Um, Portsmouth has just got some, it's got some really amazing things. So we have um, a building, love it or hate it, it's 25 stories and it's bright yellow, it's called Sponge Block. It's probably not called Sponge Block, but it's known as Sponge Block. <laughs> um, it's student accommodation, um, but I mean, how many cities have that? It's, it's, it's mad, it's brilliant, I love it. Um, we've got Spinnaker Tower, we've got Lipstick Tower. The council, um, before my time, but it's the, the guys who I'm fortunate enough to work in my team, they've built a silver cylindrical building that spans a road and joins two communities that had been split by that same road. And within that building, there are community facilities, GP surgery. I, I, it's just, it, I think it's amazing, absolutely amazing. And Portsmouth has got examples of where it's done this all over the place, and it just hasn't shouted about them. And I think, Hopefully Tipner West is going to be the catalyst for that. It should be the catalyst for a load of things. I want Tipner West to be award winning. I want it to be, I want people all across the country to be talking about, have you seen what Portsmouth's done? Have you seen how they're improving the way that people are able to live their lives and how they can choose to live their lives? Um, and hopefully that will be the catalyst for conversations around what else Portsmouth has achieved. And yeah, we can, uh, make people feel prouder to live there, although they are very proud people. <laughs> you talked about there's no such thing as an easy site. Do want to explain what you mean by that? Uh, yeah, I don't think that's uh, just for Portsmouth either. Um, any sites that were easy have been developed by now. So now if you open up a site, then it's going to have remediation or it's going to be exposed to flood risk or um, there's going to be services or it's difficult to get the land assembly because it's owned by too many people. Yeah, there's, there is just no way anyone can get hold of any site that is within a city. Uh, and be able to just develop on it. And uh, I know there's been plenty of conversation about how is that funded, where does that come from, who allows these things. And it's, it's difficult for councils and developers alike. You know, how, how do you make the change? And none of it is quick and a lot of it isn't quick because the sites are not easy to develop in the first place. But I don't think that should put us off. I think it's an excuse for us to think big, to dream big and to think about what this could achieve. Um, and really go for it and let's yeah do do things differently think about things differently and make sure that we are doing things to improve the lives of the people who will be there whether or not they live there they work there or whether they've just gone to visit there because it looks like a awesome place what do people in in Portsmouth worry about what do you think is the kind of the citizen is is thinking about not necessarily in, in relation to Tipner but just in the relation um, to the city and how it's 
how it's changing or not changing. There's a, a couple of opposing um, issues actually, particularly around housing. So housing and employment, obviously, that's the top of everybody's list. But housing is a really interesting one in Portsmouth. So there's obviously a need for affordable homes. But actually, one of the things that Portsmouth also lacks is homes for the more affluent people. So actually, we found uh, that we have a shortage of homes for people with a combined income of sort of £60,000 or over. And I think that that is a, it's a really important thing to remember when we're looking at balanced communities, because those people are people who can help us to rebuild the economy, strengthen the economy in that area. So trying to make sure that we balance that and that um, we give people opportunity, equal opportunities, whether or not they are low earners or, or high earners, and giving them something that appeals to them. And I'm not expecting the whole city to respond to every demographic, um, but Portsmouth has seven high streets within that little island. And there's no reason why some of them can't cater to different demographics across the whole city. So if you have an, an affluent um, family now, what, mm. what do they do? Do they leave the city? Not all of them. There are some pockets of places that they can live, but many of them leave, yeah. So you want to retain them as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. Um, and as I said, you know, we've, we've got the jobs for them. So um, it's just making sure that they've got somewhere to, somewhere to live and um, and, and places for them to enjoy themselves across the city as well. And spend their money. Absolutely. I was trying not to say that, but yes. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really important that they do. You know, economic growth is a, is a key desire uh, for the city. We've just published our economic growth strategy um, and we know that we need to do that. And a lot of that is through tech. It's through our, our university is just performing out of their skin. They're just getting stronger and stronger. Um, so how do we retain that intelligent workforce? How do we, how do we help? How do they help us define what's coming up? We're actually talking to them at the moment about whether or not there's opportunity for them to develop, develop some, um, some of the buildings on Tipna. Um, partly for themselves to use um, uh, in the future so that they can have tech-based solutions to some of the things that they're working on right now. Uh, partly, actually, is, th is there an opportunity to match skills and test things? You know, as academic experts, actually, the way that we're doing things in the real world, where does it match, where does it not match? What can we learn from them? What can they learn from us? And how can we create better solutions? So everything we're doing with um, Tipner at the moment, we're designing um, in BIM as well, um, using BIM processes to make sure that we understand exactly how that whole development functions. And I think it's one of the first uh, master plans that's been developed in that, using that technology right from the beginning. Loads of them have been done in Revit, don't get me wrong, but actually using the BIM processes, um, I think it's the first. There's a lot of moral panic around air pollution and Portsmouth probably has a particular issue because it has this thriving port mm -hmm. um, and all those different mixes of transport. Is that a problem for the council? Is that something they need to think about in terms of transport futures? You know, we're talking about getting rid of cars, but of course there's going to be transport trucks and ferries and all kinds of um, shipping mm -hmm. uh, uh, pollution and traffic as well. Yeah, air quality is hugely important and actually we're looking at whether or not there are 
clean air zones need to be brought in and actually what does that mean and um, whether or not there need to be any uh, penalties um, for particular vehicles. The good news is that from in terms of what's happening in uh, vehicles more and more people are moving over to electric um, so actually the problem should even if the traffic doesn't decrease the problem should decrease over a little bit of time for some things not for everything I, we recognize but actually we're looking at other solutions um, right now we're working up some really exciting um, ideas around uh, whether or not it's possible to have a transport hub on the edge of the city and actually could that be a place where people from all across the city go to in order to connect onto wherever it is that they're going next and um, again it goes back to different options so can can there be car clubs can there be ubers there can there be rapid transport uh, are there buses is there somewhere that you can charge your electric bike can you have electric scooters um, how can people move around the city and actually can we have a hub that's on the edge of the city which means it's easy for people to come onto the island and then travel on equally it's easy for someone in the island to get to this point and travel on the other side would that help us alleviate some of the traffic from the city centre, knowing that exactly as you said, with the port and the ferries and all of that stuff, we are never going to be able to eliminate all the heavy traffic from the centre of our city, simply because of the logistics and the connections on. I think there's a statistic that basically says that um, the shops run out of food on the, on the Channel Islands after about two days of not getting deliveries through Portsmouth. So Portsmouth is hugely important. We can't just say, actually, we need to close the fort for absolutely I mean, traffic purposes. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally biased. But yes, Portsmouth is hugely important. <laughs> well, I can't remember the statistic about how many bananas come through Portsmouth, but it's something oh, the, crazy. Yeah, the statistic has dropped slightly, sadly. But yeah, I think at least 60% of the bananas in the UK come through Portsmouth. So is there and a... that's the council-owned port. Do you think there'll be a move for transport trucks to go hydrogen or electric? I mean, or is that something that the that the council can can urge them towards, or is that not really on the radar yet? I don't know. I think that was probably something I need to leave to uh, the traffic and transport guys. Um, but I, I'm sure that that would be something that we were attempting to encourage where possible. But it's like you said. Um, that, that that hub is hugely important, not just to Portsmouth, but to the whole of the UK. So you need to keep that traffic moving. Absolutely. No, totally agree. And I think actually through some of the exercises that we've had to do as a result of the uh, the Brexit issues, um, that has really established exactly how busy it is, how important it is. So some of the contingency measures that we had to put in place in case of a no deal um, actually showed us the real volume of traffic that's going through the port and the importance which has allowed us to really sort of keep that firmly in our mind that that is a fundamental part of what Portsmouth is and does and we need to maintain that and we need to be respectful of that around other developments how they can work together rather than thinking that we'll ever be able to eliminate the traffic through there and the traffic may well change become more healthy but actually there will always be that heavy moving vehicles um, or vehicular access um, that will allow people to continue their journey but we need that Portsmouth needs that otherwise Portsmouth would be a dead end and then we would have nowhere near our 9.3 million uh, visitors each year. When you um, did your Brexit contingency planning, mm. what were some of the things you learned? 
Was that um, where the Isle of Wight statistic came out of that you had two days? The, the so. Channel Islands. Oh, sorry, yeah, Channel yeah. Islands. Um, you, that's where I learned it from. I'm sure someone knew it before that. But um, yeah, we learned that. We also learned that the port doesn't have a particular um, queuing system because everything we deal with is on the continent and we haven't needed the paperwork. So actually, as soon as you slow people down, so it's very similar to everything that they figured out in um, Dover. I think it's um, in Dover, if they had a sort of eight second delay of people holding up a piece of paper and then driving through, it was okay. And if it went to a 20 second where someone had to wind down the window, hand over the paperwork and bring it back, then I think for uh, then there was a significant impact on Dover. If you then put it into Portsmouth, where we have, I think, the queuing capacity of about 15 lorries, all you need is about, you know, less than a minute to check paperwork, and suddenly you then are backing up the M27, which backs up the A3, which backs up the M3. Um, it very quickly has a knock-on impact if people don't have paperwork in place. So we had to look at a number of different options to deal with the no deal scenario, which thankfully uh, we haven't had to uh, put uh, into action. And the solutions are basically queues, places for people to queue. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've, uh, yeah, we've created spaces um, for stacking lorries, but ultimately, uh, ultimately there's a queuing system that would go up onto the A34. Um, so uh, it's, uh, not something you want to do. No, no, absolutely not. No, so we have an extra car park now which has got um, space for an extra 50 lorries should we need it. But I, again, in, in, <laughs> yeah, no, no deal with Brexit is not ideal for Portsmouth. It grinds us to a halt very quickly. You, you mentioned Portsmouth being too close to London and too far away and yeah. I'm sure there's loads of cities that could probably oh I'm sure there are loads <laughs> that feel exactly the same yeah I mean we're we're not far from London at all but actually um, it's mostly the railway link so um, we can drive to London an hour and a half which is terrific really really great but in terms of sort of commutability it's an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes um, because it's quite an old train line um, so we're really well connected in Portsmouth in that we've got five train stations but actually when we look at the how we connect into London and quite often that's you know where values come from so we, we struggle with our house values um, we are just slightly too far out to be able to pick up commuters and so that's what I mean by we're slightly too far away but we're also close enough that people assume that we benefit from being that, that close to London. So if there was a way of getting our train line upgraded, um, we, we, we push as regularly as we possibly can, but that one's out of our control. But it would just be, it would make such a difference to us. And, and honestly, I believe it would make a huge difference to the UK as well, just being able to connect that port with London a bit better. Well, I think the level of ambition is is massive. Mm, absolutely, and um, not only in Tipna, we have uh, we're looking at uh, reaching our city centre. Obviously, we've got the waterfront, uh, South Sea waterfront, that we're doing with the engineering solution. But there's got to be a sense of place after that, um, and we're also starting to look at um, estate regeneration as well. So, yeah, we've. Uh, as a team, we've grown tremendously. Uh, when I came on board uh, just over a year ago, we were a team of six. We are now a team of 22. 
um, and yeah so we've as I say we've got at least three regenerations that I can talk about and some more that I can't um, we've got nine uh, development projects on the go and uh, we also look after the industrial park up the road we are implementing uh, BIM as well, and uh, we're looking at a new governance um, structure across the rest of the council to find out exactly how we run projects how and how we can get buy-in uh, from as many politicians as we can. I think it's interesting because you, you've come out of the private sector, and I think you know this is a really exciting time where councils are, are building and they're becoming the, you know big developers, really. Um, and what, what was exciting about that for you to go into the public sector? Uh, I regularly start off by saying I wanted to use my powers for good. Um, I love regeneration, I love change, um, and I love, uh, I love what-if scenarios. What if we did this? How would that work? Um, the council's own land, um, and they have the ability to, um, to make decisions that are not purely financial. And for me, that's why it was a really good fit. I get to be ambitious, I get to drive things, but I really get to focus on purpose. And part of what I think is missing from the industry now is when I was doing this sort of 15 years ago, um, I was regularly described as a trusted advisor. I would work for um, a client or a funding body and I would talk about uh, the vision and the purpose and I was a project manager but yet I was there as a client representative and I was pushing the purpose of why. When the recession hit it felt like quite a lot of that um, diluted um, as the most important thing obviously was, was financials and not much else came into it. But I feel that project management never really recovered after that and it became a lot more about the paperwork and a lot more about the process and significantly less about protecting the vision and really driving what a regeneration could be. And that's the space that I really want to occupy. I want to be the regeneration champion. I want to be the person that focuses on purpose and, is a, and pushes our team to think about things differently. I don't want the same old solutions that have been tried everywhere else just to be stuck together in a slightly different order. What I want to do is say, this is what we need to achieve and I want some R&D to figure out, okay, how do we get there? What's been tried somewhere else? Have they done something in, in Europe that we can, we can borrow to help us stick these two things together? Or actually, do we have to come up with a bespoke solution? Um, it's, it's really important that we think about these things correctly because also thinking about um, the way that we build and trying to be more environmentally conscious right from the very beginning. We can't think about these buildings as, as, as something that's going to be up for 35 years and then we're going to rip it down. We need to think about these buildings as going to be up for 35 years and they may be reclad or they may be taken apart delicately and put back in some different model. And it's not a disposable environment anymore. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's, it's a very strong responsibility to think about it at the beginning and have someone responsible for that. And that's, that's what drives me, that's, that's why I'm here. That's, and that's what I believe I have a real opportunity to influence.
make you a really exciting client because I'm assuming that that means you're saying to Gensler, go back, do better, show me what you can do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that he would say that that's exciting. But yes, I challenge them. So we work, um, we work with Gensler, Savills, WSP. Uh, we've got ECD doing um, doing the BIM stuff, and then we've got um, marine uh, marine projects who are doing all the marine maritime work. And yeah, I, I like to imagine that they think it's exciting. I imagine sometimes they are <laughs> uh, wondering what they get themselves into. But yes, we we have open conversations. We we have what if conversations, and um, we try and think about what it would be like to live in that place. Oh yeah, and we've got Dean and Co coming along as well and helping us to support that message around purpose. So that when we have consultation, this is the other thing, you know, con public consultation has changed over the years and it used to be a tick box exercise. And I understand why, so there's no criticism, but it can't be that anymore. Um, and if it can't be that, and we have to acknowledge that it takes time, but we have to also acknowledge that it's important that we keep to our timescale. How do we get people involved? How do we give them the information? And how do we ask them questions that allow their local knowledge to influence what we're doing in a timely manner? And I think that ultimately comes back to, if we've got a strong sense of purpose, we will be able to tell people what we're doing with authenticity. Whereas if what we're trying to do is build some houses because we need 20% profit, that's not going to be as easy story, whereas here we're talking about inclusion, we're talking about people first. I mean, so far, all the public engagement that we've got has been terrific. We've had some really exciting press coverage and we've really had very little negative. Um, it'll come, it'll come, I know that. But, but it's just really exciting that people can understand what we're doing. So, yeah. Um, and, and Tipner is forging the way for us. Like I say, there are other projects that will follow and we will do it with the same enthusiasm and the same sense of purpose. And it was a firing range. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, but it won't be for long. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to me today. No problem. Thank you for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.